Well, good morning. Uh, great to be together in the kind of way that we are at present still. And just actually while I'm on that, to remind you, if you haven't seen the news that we sent out through the week, uh, with restrictions easing, we actually do expect that in the next little while we'll be able to uh, take steps towards restarting church. Uh, it won't be straightforward or easy. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things we need to work through and sort out, but um, stay tuned for more information. The big thing we're wanting to do, though, is gather as many of you into what we're calling a relaunch team. And any of you who love Jesus, uh, love church, well, want to help make church work, want to be kind of in a crowd of people to actually make it work as best we can to welcome new people uh, to serve one another if you want to be part of that just keep keep tuned for information about uh, uh, events where you'll be able to come along and find out more of what that means and be helped and encouraged to uh, serve the purpose of God into the future it's, it should be should be soon uh, the next couple of weeks and God willing if restrictions do keep easing we hope within the next month or so we'll be back together somewhat uh, it'll be complex. We'll keep you informed. Um, and you'll notice, actually, I've got a little bit of a voice. I have been, um, you know, I've had this funny cough. I don't know where it's come from. Uh, and a little bit of fever and stuff. And, um, but I'm sure it'll be okay. Is that right? No, no, I've had the COVID test this week and uh, it's all come back negative. So I'm just sharing cold and flu, nothing worse. Um, but how about we pray and we'll uh, wrestle with the word of God together. Let me pray for us. Our great God and Father, we, uh, we do pray, please, for your mercy on our world, that you might remove uh, this virus, that you might contain it, that you might keep uh, your world safe, please, in the midst of such tragedy. Uh, we ask the church might be able to come back together around our country, around the world soon, please. Bring your people back together. We pray for this time now that you might help us uh, have good attention in the Scriptures, that in this context where we're also distanced from each other, that you might give us minds and hearts that can focus still on your words and that by that you might transform and change as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to suggest to you, I, I love and hate motivational speaking. Uh, I listen to lots of speaking and uh, do a lot of it myself. And I, I love and hate motivational speaking. I love it because there's something powerfully good about a, a talk that helps you be different, that helps you change, that motivates you to be different. Um, but I, I do hate it because usually it kind of falls down into emotionalism. It, you know, it, it's just speech that plays on your emotions. It has very little content. It has very little substance. It's high on energy, high on passion. Uh, and in certain some contexts, like sporting contexts, it's just full of expletives uh, to make it all work. Uh, and it, it may bring about change, but only for a short moment. It's kind of like a sugar hit, that kind of motivational talk. Uh, so I hate it at that point, but I love it when it's done right. And the Bible does it right. The Bible actually is a book of substance and meat. And this chapter that we're looking at, and the whole Bible, of course, is into motivational speech in its best sense. It's into speaking the truth for the purpose of changing you, actually bringing about a whole change of your life, fundamentally that you might be brought to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, that you might be saved. 
And it brings so much to bear to stir us to see our need of that, to encourage and urge us to move on towards repenting and trusting uh, the Lord Jesus. But having made that decision, God is concerned to continue to compel and, and urge and motivate us to cling to him, to walk in him, to live by him. And so he gives us his word that his spirit uses to work in our lives to transform and change us. The key here is that the motivation comes from a deeper place, though, than mere emotion. It comes from content-filled truth. Deeper insights into yourself, into life, into the world around you. And that's chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and now, we've been into this for the last three weeks, this particular chapter. It's a long chapter. And today, we actually find out why he's written all of these words in this chapter. It's there in the very last sentence, verse 58. Let me read it to you. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You see the word therefore, verse 58 starts with the word therefore, which tells you it's kind of carrying on all the ideas that have been talked about up to this point. Uh, it's connected. Here's the conclusion now. Here's the application of all that Paul's been saying through chapter 15. Therefore, stand firm, let nothing move you. Don't give up and, you'll see halfway through the verse, give yourself to something. Be active, labour in the Lord. Now it's a wonderful verse and it's a deeply important verse for us. And it captures and summarizes all that Paul had been saying through this chapter. And uh, very important for us. Uh, but I want you to notice it is about being something as a Christian, not just believing something. What's being called on here is for a group of people to give themselves to being a certain way, to living a certain way, not just believing certain facts. Christianity is not just head. It starts with your understanding and insight, but it's meant to affect your affections, your whole emotional life, your will, your choices, your lifestyle. It's meant to change you and transform you. You see, it starts with the word therefore because it's based on the whole motivational speech that's come before in the earlier part of chapter. Now, here's the plan this morning. I'm going to focus together on verse 58. I want to uh, try and understand what, what it is that he's calling us to, uh, what changes does he want us to make, and then I want to look at the whole motivation that he's given in the earlier part of the chapter to undergird and drive that. So I want to start with the new life, and I want to start there particularly because there's a complication with it. it now, it's not a complication in what he says, verse 58, but it, it's a complication that the last few decades of Christian world have created. There was no complication until the last bunch of decades, but Christianity has somehow made it more complicated. And I want to clear that away first. And I want to clear that away first so that we can understand what the verse is actually saying, so that I can then let it preach. I want to then go back to the earlier part of the chapter and see the motivation and the energy and the fire and the drive that Paul brings to this verse, and to then encourage and help us to pursue what he's calling us to. So there's the plan. We'll look at the verse see the whole context and come back to the verse. But let me start with the verse and the complication that's there. The complication is that phrase, if you look in verse 58, always halfway through the verse, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. That little phrase, work of the Lord, 
has become a very complicated one in recent years. Now in its context, it's fairly straightforward and I'll show you that in a second, but over the last few decades, the sense of what it means has shifted. It's now in popular Christian thinking come to mean anything that a Christian does out of devotion for Jesus. Devote yourself to the work of the Lord, uh, to, to just doing work in the Lord's name is how it's generally read today, a very broad sense to the idea. Um, and for so many today it just means be a godly school teacher. When you work in the building site, be a godly worker. When you commute to Sydney, be a godly commuter. It just means do your work in the Lord. But I want to, I mean there's various reasons why it's become thought of like that, but I want to suggest that that's not actually what Paul meant. And it's fairly easy and straightforward to work out what he meant. Now how do you work out what a phrase of the Bible means? There's no kind of dictionary you go to to find out Bible phrases and what they mean. Um, otherwise that would become the authority. The place you go to is the Bible itself. And what you do is you, you look at the phrase in its context and see if the author of that phrase, the, the man who wrote it, Paul, uses the same phrase elsewhere. And if he uses it elsewhere, then you can start to build together a picture of what he means by it, what he means by it, not what we'd like to think he meant, but what he means. I mean, this is just, this is not rocket science. This is what you do all the time in relationships. My, when I got married to Kathy, um, she used to use a phrase all the time, it cost a bomb. And I, I, I had no idea what that meant. And, um, and I didn't ask. I probably should have just said, what do you mean? But um, that made me feel like I'm, I should know. And so I just kept listening to whenever she used it and whatever context she used it in. And I eventually worked out it meant expensive, cost a bomb, how much a bomb costs. Now, I don't know whether it's an English phrase or something, but uh, it's, uh, I think she, anyway, that's a phrase I worked out what, what it meant. But I worked it out by listening to her use it elsewhere in other contexts. Um, now, Paul, what does he mean by that phrase, work of the Lord? It's an important thing because we're to devote ourselves to it. But what does he mean by it? Well, you look at where he uses the phrase. And helpfully, just a few paragraphs later, he uses the phrase again. You come across to chapter 16. And he says there in verse 10, When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. There's that phrase. And he's referring to Timothy, who's doing the work of the Lord. Now, right away, that alerts you to something. What it alerts you to is that Timothy is doing the work of the Lord, just as Paul is doing the work of the Lord, which means it's not just any Christian activity. There are particular people who are doing the work of the Lord. Now, you also get the use of the word work in the same context, which kind of helps you see the meaning as well. If you come back a verse to verse 9, or verse 8, I'll stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened up to me and there are many who oppose me. Effective work. Now what he's talking about there is a, a door for effective work has opened up, meaning the work of gospel work. The work of actually sharing the gospel and bringing people to faith. Um, now that would make sense of why he goes on to talk about Timothy who's carrying on the work of the Lord. 
it makes you wonder whether what he means by the work of the Lord is gospel work. And I'd suggest that's exactly what he means. You come down to verse 15, you see the same language again. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. They have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people, to the service of the Lord's people. Now, it's not the same phrase, but notice this. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. So the work that he's talking about that these people join in is the service of the saints. It's a great a door for effective work has opened up. Timothy gives himself to the work of the Lord. The particular work he's thinking about here is not just the work of being a Christian, doing it unto the Lord, but it's the work of serving the saints, gospel work. And this whole thing is actually confirmed when you go back to chapter 9. If you race back to chapter 9 very quickly, you'll see in verse 1, Paul says these the words, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? So that phrase, work in the Lord, is a very particular kind of thing. It's, it's not just any work your person does. It's, it's the work of gospel work. Two kinds of gospel work. It's the, it's the work of getting people to be saved... The Corinthians are the result of his work in the Lord and maturing those who are saved. Uh, the service of the saints, Stephanus. Uh, so Timothy's involved in this work of the Lord uh, and you're to honour such men who are involved in this kind of work, gospel work, bringing people to faith, growing people in the faith, deepening them in their walk with Jesus. That's the kind of thing that work of the Lord means. Now, um, on the basis of this, many people are then left with a question. I've been explaining this for many years now to people, and every time I do it, almost every time I do it, a question arises, which is, well, hang on. What are you saying about my work as a schoolteacher? What are you saying about my work as a builder? Um, what about my other work? Are you saying that's of no significance? Now, because I'm conscious that that's exactly the kind of question that emerges when you realise that work of the Lord is a narrower thing, it's gospel work, it's not just any work, let me give you a very brief summary of the Bible's teaching on work. So, are you ready for this? Let me race through it for you. In the Bible, there are two kinds of work. And you see it in God himself. God is a worker. In John chapter 5, Jesus talks about his father and himself working from the, the beginning. So they're workers. God is a worker. And there's two kinds of work that you could suggest God does. There is the work of creation, preservation, sustaining, bringing the rains in season and keeping the earth spinning and uh, keeping um, uh, you know, life functioning, the kind of sustaining, preserving work that God does. And I want to just, for the sake of, let me, I've, I've got a piece of technology over here that I'm going to take us to. Look at this. Modern, this is, this is because I was so slow, they couldn't, I didn't give them time to make it work. But here we have a, this is called a clipboard. <laughs> and, and on it, I've drawn a circle to say, here is God's work. And he works to create and sustain. But what I want to show you is that there's a second kind of work that God does. 
And at the centre of this work is the work of saving. He is still maintaining the universe and upholding all things. But in the midst of all of that, he's doing another kind of work, the work of saving. And I'd offer that that's exactly the pattern for, for Christians, for people. God made us in his image. He made us to be workers. He made us to till the earth. And we had to give ourselves to sustaining and preserving and working and, and growing and helping and giving and so on. There's all kinds of work that we do. But at the centre of our life of work is a work of saving, uh, the work of the Lord, a very particular kind of work, two kinds of work. Now, it's important to appreciate that because I'll, I'll be finished with this in a moment. It's, it's important to appreciate that because this work here has its own kind of significance. It is important. So come back with me to the scriptures. Come over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Paul the Apostle says here, the same man, the same author, he says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. What, what I'd offer is Paul is saying that external circumference of work the work of preserving, sustaining, building and growing and so on. That work is a good work. And you are to do it in a way that's worship. It becomes a worshipful work when it's done unto the Lord. When it's done out of a desire to please and honour Him. And if you're aware of that verse in Colossians, it's actually written to a slave. And Paul says to the slave... A man doing, a woman doing demeaning work. A work of no ultimate earthly value at all. He, he, Paul says to that slave, if you do it unto the Lord, not unto your earthly master, not with reference to what they think of you, but if you do it as serving the Lord, you'll have an inheritance that will come. Because he'll see, he'll be honoured, he'll be pleased, and he will welcome you into his presence with joy. Do it under the Lord. It's a thing of great merit. Not the thing itself, but the reason I do it, the way I do it, and so on. You know, there was a, many of you will have heard of a man called Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King was a, a leader of um, the uh, emancipation movement, if you like, back in the 60s. And, um, and he, uh, he, was, he was a great orator. And uh, he used a line about work that I've always found stirring and helpful. Let me share it with you. He said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or as Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Now that is a beautifully inspiring statement. It's wrong, but it's right in many ways. <laughs> let me tell you why I think it's let me tell you why I think it's wrong and then show why it's actually so helpful. It's wrong because the outcome of being a worker, doing it under the Lord, is not that the universe will look on and say, what a great worker you were. Colossians chapter 3 
It's that your heavenly Father will look on and say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's not that you'll be seen as a great worker. It's that your Father will be pleased. Now that is a profoundly different orientation. It's not about how I'm seen. It's how my Father responds. And whatever job you do, do it under the Lord. Teach kids not concerned first and foremost about them, but concerned first and foremost that your Father, Heavenly Father, will be pleased with how you do your job. Buy groceries for the family, not embittered and frustrated, but as an act of love and service for your family under the Lord, knowing that the way you do it will please Him, and so do it under Him, and it becomes a thing of great worth and significance, whatever job you do. We don't do it for the people around us, first and foremost. We do it as an act of love, of course, for them. But we do it first and foremost to please the Lord. You know, I was at Bunnings a couple of days ago, and I had to buy some timber. Oh, I'm making a little shed, but I had to buy some timber. And uh, when I took it to the, uh, to the checkout, they um, registered it as uh, H2, but it was actually H3. It was a more expensive kind of timber than they charged me for. I stuck it on the roof. I drove out through the, ent- the exit, and the man who checks you on the way out said, oh, hang on, that's... H3, it's not H2. And I said, oh, I told the lady that, and anyway, and he said, you're going to have to go and pay more. And I said, all right. And he said, drive out of Bunnings, go and park in the car park and go back in and pay more. So what did I do? I drove out, drove into the car park and thought, no one can see me. There's no one around who cares. It's just Bunnings. And so with great frustration, I got out of the car, locked the car, walked all the way through Bunnings and back into the trade desk and stood there feeling like Ned Flanders. Do you know what I mean? I had this, I was, my, my anxiety about, I had this anxiety and I was concerned that people would see me as self-righteous. And I hate that thought that I might have, and I hate the thought that I might look like Ned Flanders. But you know what kept me there? It wasn't about Bunnings. It wasn't about what they thought. It wasn't about what people thought. It's what my Heavenly Father thinks. And so I paid the bill and it cost me $3.64 more. And I thought, this is not about the money. I drove home, took the timber off the roof, checked the receipt and realised I'd bought less timber than they charged me for. (laughs) And uh, so what am I going to do with that? Well, anyway, there you go. Now, the reason I tell you that, it's a good story to tell because it's not very impressive. I don't, I, that doesn't make me seem very impressive at all. It's only $3.60. But I tell you the story because it illustrates the internal talk that I think we need to develop in our lives. When, when you wake up in the morning and you drag yourself out of bed to go to work or to go to your study because you don't work anymore as a commuter, but you get up and you do your job and you make yourself stay there when you could be out somewhere else and you work at it. When you do that, tell yourself you're doing it under the Lord. And my aim is to do it like Michelangelo painted or some great sculpture, not so that people think I'm the greatest worker, but so that my father will be pleased with the way I work because he's the one I'm serving ultimately. That gives every job that you do great significance and worth. Do it under the Lord. Your ordinary work, paid or unpaid, 
Whether you're a homekeeper or someone who goes out to work, it doesn't matter. Do it under the Lord. Don't measure it by the way people around you think about it. You, if, you're, if you're a builder and you're building a house, you're building the Lord's house. It's his house you're building. Do it under him. That'll change the way you work. If you're shopping, shop under the Lord. He's at home and you're about to bring groceries back to him. That'll change the way it happens or her. Love him in your love of others. But, but, there's another kind of work. A labor of the Lord. A narrower kind of work. It's the work of seeking and saving. It's the work of growing and keeping and nurturing the faith of others. It's the work of building the church. And it's been the work that Paul has been focused on for all these chapters that we've been looking at. Chapter 12 and 13 and 14. That's the work he's been concerned about. That's why he says the Lord God has gifted us. He's gifted us with gifts for the common good. The whole chapter on love is to help us see that what matters is that we use whatever we have to build the church. To edify and grow people. To win people to faith and grow them in their faith. And it's this kind of work that he's talking about in chapter 15, verse 58. Always give yourself fully to this kind of work, the work of the Lord. Because this work, he says, will never be in vain. The house you build will collapse. The patient you heal will die. The street you sweep will get dirty again. But there is a work, he says, that will never be in vain. It's the work of winning people to faith, growing them in their faith, building the church. And notice this. Although he singles out himself and a few others in chapter 16 who have especially given themselves to the labor of the Lord, the service of the saints, he urges the Corinthians, all the Corinthians, paid and unpaid, he urges all the Corinthians to devote themselves to this task. Work of the Lord is not just for paid pastoral staff. Work of the Lord is the privilege of all Christians. Now, there's verse 58. The complication cleared up, I hope. I want to now put it in its context and see why it's there. Why the word therefore is there. And then let it preach. The context. Well, verse 58 immediately comes in the context of verse 56 and 7. Look at verse 57. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The most immediate context is this context of victory. Victory that has been given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you come back another verse into verse 56 and you'll see that his victory is the victory over death. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is talking about is the reality of death that haunts every human. It haunts us because it will undo everything you have ever done in your life. It will make a mockery of every life and takes everything from us. But worse, it has a sting. That is, death isn't the last word on our lives. 
Beyond death is judgment. And a judgment that's made against the law of God as the measure of a life that's worthy. And against the law of God, our sinful lives will be seen for what they are. Fallen, corrupted, rebellious, dark. Amongst ourselves, it's easy to imagine we're okay. But before the law of God, it will be evident that our sin is horrendous. And so after death, we face a second death. Separation from God, separation from all that is good, from all that is beautiful, from all that is eternal. And friends, a moment's reflection, if you can allow, if you can allow a moment's reflection on this, means it's horrifying. It's terrifying. Jesus says, do not fear him who can kill the body and after do that, do nothing more. There's something far worse than death, he says. Fear him who after killing the body can cast the soul into hell. I tell you, fear him. I think you need to reflect on this. I think I need to reflect on this. To find yourself after death, shut out from the presence of God forever. Cut off from all good forever. Alone. Under the curse and judgment of God forever. Imagine waking up into that existence. Where are you, God? Where is anybody? It is horrifying. And it is the sting that death brings because of sin and the law which we compare our lives to. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. He has given us. He has given us. We have not earned it. He has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ which takes you right back to the very start of the chapter. Come back to the very beginning of chapter 15, where Paul talks about the gospel message that he preached. And he says there, verse 2, By this gospel you are saved, saved from the sting of death, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. And what is this message? Well, verse 3, in essence, it's a message about Jesus. It's about Jesus who died for our sins, who himself took the sting of death upon himself, who sucked the poison of death that we ought to have and sucked it into himself and so suffered under the judgment of God. He drank the cup of God's wrath and he did it for us in our place so that for all those who hold, verse 2, firmly to the word that Paul preached about Jesus, about his merits saving us, not our efforts saving ourselves. But whoever holds firmly to the message of grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone, will be saved. Death won't have a sting anymore. But more, Paul goes on to say that the that Lord Jesus was raised. That verse uh, 5 there, uh, verse five, four, 4 and 5, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. But more than that, he wasn't just raised, he was seen. He was seen by individuals, by pairs, by groups of people. 
All of which shows that the power, the sting of death in Jesus has been sucked dry. It has no more sting for those who trust in Jesus. There is life to come. And what follows is a chapter that drives home the powerful truth of the resurrection and the glory of the resurrection. The truth of it. It has happened. I don't know if you get the energy through this chapter, but Paul is deeply concerned to teach the Corinthians and us that, that the resurrection is no myth, it's no legend, it's no fairy tale. It actually happened. People today often think that it must be a myth or a legend or a fairy tale. It's too astonishing to be true. Um, but notice that Paul makes it very clear that very many different groups saw him alive. This was no mere hallucination. Individuals saw him. Pairs of people saw him. Groups of people, 500 at one time, in different places, at different times, during the day, at night, in the evening, in the morning. This is no hallucination and it's no myth. The Apostle Paul reports the truth of the resurrection at the time when many are still alive. He says, verse 6 there, that many of whom are still living. That is to say, it tells you a couple of things. It says that this report of the resurrection happened within such a short time frame between the event and the reporting. There was no time for legend to develop. It's probably 16 years between the writing of 1 Corinthians and the resurrection of Jesus. That, that is not, it takes generations for a legend to create. There's no time for that. And it tells you another thing. That the, the tomb is empty and there are people who saw Jesus alive. Paul is saying you can go and talk to them. And, and I'm happy to put it out there. That there are people who saw Jesus. He is still alive. And you can go and talk to them. Because so convinced was he of the truth of this. That there was no threat to go and talk to witnesses. This is true, he says. We saw it. He then goes on, verse 12, to explain all the implications if he's not been raised. Because it matters to the Apostle Paul that it's true. This is not just a vision in our hearts of a spiritual thing. It's a bodily resurrection of a man from the grave. It matters. And he points out, verse 30, verse 32, his own sacrifice in doing the work of the Lord. Verse 30, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every day? I face death every day. Yes, as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, by wild beasts I take it, it's a, it's a, a metaphor for suffering and being in, in battle with people. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The Apostle Paul runs it this way. He says, um, uh, Live like everyone else if there's no resurrection. If it's not true, then, then the fool is the one who lives as if it is true. You'd be far wiser just to go and live and eat and drink like everyone else does if there is no resurrection. Go and enjoy life. Do, make the most of life. Pursue your career. Pursue your family. Uh, live where you'll find it the most enjoyable. Pursue all the things that are best fun. That's how you should live life if there is no resurrection. But if there is a resurrection, devote yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord will never be wasted. And then what follows is the teaching on the glory of the resurrection. 
The Apostle Paul from verse 35, just um, statement after statement, fills up how wonderful the resurrection is. He goes on to say that this life might be great in many ways. The body that we have now is glorious in many ways. But it isn't a scrap on the resurrection body to come. It's just a seed that will give rise to a mighty oak. So verse 40, have a look there. There is also heavenly body and there is earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly body is of one kind. The splendor of the earthly body is another. There is a kind of splendor and glory to the earthly body. If you feel that this body has some glory about it, you're right. There is something marvelous and wonderful and extraordinary about the human body. But... The resurrection body eclipses it entirely as, as the oak tree eclipses the seed from which it came. It has an amazing thing, the seed, but it's nothing compared to what becomes. Verse 42, the resurrection of the dead, the body that is sown perishable, as glorious as it is, it's perishable, will be raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor because it, it corrupts and it's captured by sin. But it will be raised in glory, a glory that eclipses it entirely. It's sown in weakness, but it will be raised in power. Thanks be to God who's given us the victory. Do you know, this was always God's purpose. Verse 46, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural and after that the spiritual. The first man was the man, the dust of the earth. The second man is the man of heaven. See, notice this. The Apostle Paul is actually teaching right at this point that God's purpose always for Adam in the Garden of Eden to move from the natural body to the spiritual glorious body. It was always God. He made Adam the man of the earth, the dust of the earth, to one day become the glorious spiritual body. That was where we were created to go, which is why the Bible doesn't take us back to the Garden of Eden. Heaven is not a return to the garden. The garden was the first step to take us to the glory of a new creation. We're going to a city, not a garden. We're going to something far more glorious and more wonderful, the tree compared to the seed. You know, um, as it is with Christ, so it will be with us. Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Paul is saying that this body, glorious though it is, is not good enough to inherit the kingdom of God. We need to be changed and we will be, verse 51, 52, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. The Lord God will come back in the, his son, uh, th th there will be the return of Jesus and at the last trumpet the, the sound of victory will be sounded forth and we will all be changed, transformed into the glory of the new life some will be changed from the sleep of death they will have been in death when jesus returns and be raised others will be alive at that time when jesus comes but all of this is made secure and solid and real because of the factual resurrection of jesus from the grave i can't remember whether it was graham or jez who gave that great illustration it's been a wonderful couple of weeks but one of them gave the domino illustration that that the, the domino of Jesus that falls must lead to our resurrection, our being glorified, so that the perishable is clothed with imperishable, mortal with immortality, so that death itself, verse 54, will be swallowed up, its sting taken through the kindness of God. Therefore, 
Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, Paul says, therefore, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Do not drift from this hope. And it's such a wonderful hope. It is real. It is true. It means the sting of death is gone only if you hold to the word that Paul taught. Otherwise, you are believed in vain. Brothers and sisters, let nothing move you from this gospel message. Don't drift. Don't drift because you as a human were made for the glory of the resurrection. God made you in this physical body to one day be released into the new one. Don't miss out on your birthright. What God made you for. The natural must come first, then the spiritual. And if you drift from the message of the gospel Paul preached to another kind of gospel message, to a gospel of works, to a gospel of triumphalism, you will have believed in vain. It matters what you believe. That you can cling to the Paul gospel, not just to any gospel, but the Bible gospel. Now as a pastor, as a pastoral team here, this is our burden for you. This life isn't it. Don't be conned. We plead with you. We live at a time of this worldliness where people have severed all interest in the age to come in, in the possibility of there being a world beyond this one. They've severed all interest in that. It's called secularism. Let's just think about this life and getting our meaning and our significance and our worth from this life. And in that context, we as Christians can be shaped by the world around us and its values, its priorities. And its values and priorities, the seven-day weekend. In a world where you can pay the bills, what's left? Eat and drink and be merry. Make the most of this life. It breaks our heart to see the dangers around us. It breaks my heart to see the danger in my own life, the drift it breaks our heart to see the drift in the lives of others who think that the aim of life as a Christian is just to enjoy life. There is much to enjoy. Give thanks for the relative peace that we enjoy. But life is bigger than this. This is just a moment and the glory is to come. This is perishable. This is mortal. This is the seed. There's the great oak to come. And the Lord Jesus has made it secure. Watch what you believe. Be clear on the gospel message. Don't drift. The pressure will be to drift. We worry so much about so many of us struggling with the habits of church. Without church on anymore, it's so easy to drift. To, to let it slide, to... Be consumed with the things of the world. Don't. Fight that. Be motivated by what Paul says through 1 Corinthians 15. Take care of the deceitfulness of sin. Preach this to yourself. The resurrection is true. It's true. It's gloriously true. And it's God's purpose for us if we hold firmly to the message. But there's more. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. And do something. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Because so you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 
Paul makes obvious here that the work of the Lord is work. He calls it labor. He repeats the word. And he notes it in chapter 16 that to honor those who labor at their work in the Lord. There is no honor for the gospel worker who sees the Christian ministry as just another job, who sees it as a hobby to fit in with all their other lifestyles. There's no honor in that. Labor. Now I find that hugely helpful because I'm not surprised then when I find the work of the Lord hard work. It's far easier to be on holidays. It's far easier to hang with your friends. But laboring at the work in the Lord, serving at building his church, of course it's hard work. Paul himself endangered himself every day. And he says, if there's no resurrection, what was the point? It was a waste. What have I gained? But if there is a resurrection, as he's made clear again and again and again, if there is a resurrection, if it's true, then all that effort, all that cost, all that sacrifice was worth it. When you ring up a friend, and in the context of a conversation, take the risk of asking about how they're going spiritually, it's worth it. When you drag yourself out of bed early on a Sunday morning to help set up church, it's worth it. When you take the risk and ask a friend to come to the life series that we run or to come to church or to talk to them about Jesus and you risk in that moment looking like an idiot and ruining your friendship, it's worth it. When you drag yourself out at night after a hard day's work and take yourself off to meet with a group of Christians, to talk together about the things of Christ and to try and encourage each other to stand firm and give yourself to the labor of the Lord, it's worth it. When you hear of a friend who hasn't been around for a while, who's not been streaming, who's not been connecting, who's something drifting, and you decide to follow them up carefully, graciously, wisely to try and talk about it, it's worth it. When you force yourself to sit at the dinner table and just make yourself read a bit of the Bible when the kids are going crazy. It's worth it. When you take your kids off to youth or to churn, drag yourself out to drive them there and come and pick them up again, it's worth it. You are investing in their eternal life. It's worth it. When you take time out to pray for the work of the Lord, it's worth it. When you make yourself get out of your house and come to church, when it eventually restarts, it's worth it. When you say no to the culture around us of eating and drinking and just have being on an endless holiday and pursue the life of actually laboring at the work in the Lord, it's worth it. When you give away your money, for the cause of the work of the Lord. It's worth it. Brothers and sisters, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the labor of the Lord because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. But I pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. That death no longer has its sting. What a wonder that by his death in our place, he has absorbed the sting into himself instead of us having to suffer it. 
We thank you for such grace and such love. And we thank you, though, that you then raised him to life again bodily to give us the evidence of the victory of the cross. Please help us to capture the vision of what the resurrection means for us. That we might be so captivated by the reality of that, the truth of that, that we would never move from the hope held out in the gospel. And we would give ourselves to the labour of the Lord. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.